Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. is Backworld Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 106 for September MMXV. Backworld Oracle is brought to you by this public service announcement. Nice car. Should we borrow it? Nah, that's stealing. Come on, I'll ask for permission later. Looks more like you're asking for trouble now. Tracks. I figured I wouldn't get caught. That still wouldn't make it right. Think how you'd feel if someone took your car. Yeah, pretty lousy. And if you got caught... You could end up in jail. Remember, taking something that isn't yours just isn't right. It's stealing. Now I know. And knowing is half the battle. The Transformers! Backworld the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are December's Backroll number 47 and Gotham Academy number 13, both for $2.69. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Backworld the Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Hashtag TBU family. Well, the summer is over and school's in full swing, which means work is in full swing. For students out there, good luck to you. I hope you've been able to be well rested, get your rest over the summer and, and come back refreshed and you're sort of getting used to everything. And for 
the teachers out there, goodness, if you're like me, you're just getting your legs back in you because that first week I just came back exhausted. It's, it's like you almost get out of shape of standing around and walking around talking, being energetic. You come home, you're completely wiped. So I'm, I'm kind of getting back into teacher mode and, and teacher shape. Now uh, that summer is done, there was something that I neglected to talk about, in my personal life anyways, the previous episode. Now obviously you know I went to San Diego Comic Con, but something else that I did that was certainly a highlight of my summer was going on my first ever mission trip. And this was in deep southwest Virginia, and when I say deep I mean coal country, very close to the border of Kentucky. And I was just there for uh, a week, and for five days we worked on a particular site. The, uh, the group that I went with, there were two different sites, both were trailers. And the site I had, there was uh, a woman who had COPD, and, and she had fallen a couple times, and she used oxygen, and then her husband didn't have the best mobility either. And so we added a banister to, or a railing, I guess would be the better term, to their back porch. And then to the front, we actually took out and then expanded their deck and then made a wheelchair ramp and then did, or replaced the skirting around the trailer to keep the critters out basically from there. So just working and fellowshipping with the people working there, obviously, uh, with, you know, the people I went on the trip with, and then getting to know the actual, the people that we were serving was wonderful. And of course, going out into the community and doing different things. And I just have to say such a wonderful experience that I would certainly recommend to all of you to do something like this, not necessarily if you're not up for, you know, a full mission trip, but at least getting out there and maybe serving your community somehow, you know, whether it's Salvation Army dinners or soup kitchens or something like that. It was just so fulfilling. And I think the one thing that really challenged me when I came back was the idea of getting to know these people, Wayne and Marie, and just how content they were with their lives at this point. And, you know, not resentful of what they didn't have, not wishing for more, so thankful and grateful of what we were giving to them uh, throughout the entire process. And it's just something that we, you know, hear... I, w I can't really say we're upper crust, but, you know, people that may have more means than them, it's all about, you know, what else can I get more, more, more. And I feel like we're never content. And that's just, you know, looking at that and seeing that, you know, there are conditions that could be much better for them and they're just content with what they have. I just thought that is such a challenge that I really want to try to attack this year to, to be more content with what I have and not wish for more. And uh, just great group uh, or a great couple and, and uh, wonderful getting to know them. And Wayne is super interesting because he is actually a really skilled woodworker and makes instruments, stringed instruments like guitars and banjos and dobros and things like that. And beautiful, beautiful work. And, and it was great because, you know, if we were working on something where he had a question, then he would have some sort of suggestion or he, he would even have the tools. And uh, so it really stretched me, I think, uh, physically and mentally, you know, getting to know these uh, different 
ways of, of putting things together and, and, and I think uh, spiritually as well. So uh, I certainly recommend that to you, even if you are not committed to, you know, any religion, I think that it would really be beneficial for you in general, you know, to help out in some way to go out into your community. So that's what my little soapbox will be today, or this episode is that you try to go out there and do something for community. And also my challenge for you this year is potentially to be to try to be content with what you have and, and not looking at other people and and other things and wishing you had what they had. So those are my challenges for you, faith-based or not. I think that's something that, that we can all do. So enough about that. I just wanted to you know bring that up because that was a big moment for me this summer. I do have listener emails. Mail time. Mail time. Mail time. here. Here's the mail, it never fails, it makes me want to wag my tail, when it comes I want to wail. So first of all, I have a couple comments from previous episodes. So from episode 104 from Ian, just a comment on Steph's portrayal. Genevieve Valentine said in a podcast recently that Steph is, in her conception, very much a fangirl and excited about being a hero. And he links it. Uh, you can go on the Batman Universe to get that link. It was blogtalkradio.com slash a lot of stuff. And uh, he actually transcribed it on the Stephanie Brown Wikia slash wiki slash catwoman 43 so you can go over there there is a distinct difference in tone between here and batman eternal but even in eternal especially when la fuente was on art steph had her moments of being very excitable and happy see also the geeking out over catwoman in batman eternal number 43 and the tussling with Harper's brother in 52. Also, La Fuente's art and spoiler actually being competent was worth a lot, especially since I really only bought the issue for Steph, a $1 a page value. I know we disagree about the way the current Batgirl creative team views and talks about Stephanie Brown. I was worried that their portrayal of her in the annual would be an incompetent hero who needs Batgirl to accomplish anything. And this team up was much more one where Stephanie was definitely in training, but a worthwhile hero in her own right. Plus, really cute as La Fuente usually is or or bakes her. Uh, So thanks Ian for writing in. Of course that comes off of my comments on the Batgirl annual where I said I felt her characterization was a little off from what we had seen with with Batgirl and Catwoman but there Ian was able to let us know what Valentine, Valentine or Valentine says or thinks of her character. So that's something we can look forward to as we read Catwoman which I actually really recommend if you are upset about how Catwoman started off in the New 52 and then what Anna Senti did, then this is the time to start reading Catwoman because it is just amazing what uh, Valentine or Valentine has done. Also on episode 104 from Mary, I think Spiral should invest in some butt hypnos for Dick. That's how Midnighter recognized him in Grayson. I totally get remember that mary good catch there as well i can just see the lineup for the jewel theft he just committed number three step forward now turn around would this even hold up in a court of law one advantage of dick becoming batman would be that the cape would cover his most memorable feature thanks again for another entertaining podcast and thank you mary Uh, that was very uh insightful and fun comment And on episode 105, which was the debate episode between Tom and I with Shag being a 
shoot, I'm trying to remember the she's the man quote. A, com a third party, completely uninterested individual. I can't remember what it is, but there's an amazing quote that Amanda Bynes' character says a couple times. So, <clears throat> do you like her? I don't know. Can we not talk about this? It's, I don't know if she's your sister. It's kind of weird. Oh, right, right. Just, you know, I was just thinking that you liked her, then maybe you should ask her out. And just, I don't know, forget about Olivia? Well, I mean, speaking as a completely objective third-party outsider with absolutely no personal interest in the matter, I am not sure that you and Olivia really mesh well together, you know? I mean, but you and Viola, I mean, be magic. I don't know. What does your heart tell you? Huh? I mean, which one would you rather see naked? But anyways, so during this debate, Ian says, this was quite a nice episode. I like the thoughtfulness of all contributors, even though I think Corey isn't quite the lady of the evening that Shag claims. I have to honestly say that I pretty much regard any Teen Titans title as happening in a semi-alternate continuity as the actions, world, tone, and characterization often simply make no sense when trying to make things fit with the regular Gotham set Batman family titles. Of course, I also view most Justice League titles this way. Cosmic, supernatural, and soap opera adventures just don't work that well when trying to fit the grim, power fantasy, noirish Gotham setting. I cannot comment on this very well since I don't have too much of a Teen Titans history. So perhaps our good friend Tom Panarese will comment on Tom. Do you think that Teen Titans stories fit well within continuity of other Batman titles? Does it work to read Robin with Batman and Detective and Batman and Robin with Teen Titans? You let me know because I can't really comment on that. But, you know, if I were to say anything, I would say that it's very similar to, I think, how we see other characters, you know, with Bat Batman for example, I was also thinking about Wolverine because, you know, I read Marvel. But Batman appears in, you know, at one point he's like appearing in five different books. And some of the continuity didn't really match up. And you kind of had to say, well, this is happening there. And even though it's the same character and you really want him to fit, sometimes it doesn't. And Wolverine is the same way, who appears in several, or who appeared, past tense, in several X-Men titles, and then had his own, and all of this, and so, because it's the character, you expect him to sort of follow along, but hey, how can he be in Japan, and at the Xavier Institute at the same time, so it could be something like that, or we try to, I don't know, we hope that the continuity all matches up, but Tom, if you have any thoughts on that, can continuity jive between Teen Titans and Bat Family titles or even Justice League if you have comments on that? Let me know. And now over to emails. First from uh, one of our favorite people, Donovan Morgan Grant. Step into the grand tour. Grand tour, grand tour. Step into the grand tour. Dragon Ball GT. Step into the grand tour. Grand tour, grand tour. Dragon Ball GT. Step into the grand tour. 
A brand new adventure begins. Another talent from Goku and his friends. Now he's a Saiyan strong. Vila makes him a child again. The Dragon Balls are turning burning to end. World and everything within. The ultimate battle between good and evil. Who's gonna win when the sad clock dictates the consequence? Will I both have the strength to be our last line of defense? He says, my dear Estella, I just finished listening to the latest slanderous episode of Backroll the Oracle. That's episode 104. And despite the attack on my personal tastes at the end, I somehow, <laughs> we're talking about his love of foot fetishes, uh, or his foot fetish, his love of feet and his foot fetish. I somehow managed to still enjoy the episode. Ever since you began covering Suicide Squad, I've learned so much that I didn't know before. Bah! I had never heard of the Janus Directive, and at least half of the characters in the book are new to me. Someday you'll head into the mid-90s where Oracle gets more involved with the Bat Family, where you'll call upon my expertise once again. Alas, today is not that day, and tomorrow won't be either. Let me tell you, we're getting close, friends. We are getting close. I think the scene between Batman and Oracle is only permissible under the assumption that they're playing up unfamiliarity for the sake of hidden cameras in the room. Otherwise, it makes absolutely no sense that she wouldn't be aware of his secret identity. The whole reason she's Oracle is because Ostrander and Yale read The Killing Joke, where Babs explicitly recognized who Batman was, and Batman admitted his name. In that scene, loathe as it is for you, the time for secret identities and respect for the mask has passed. It honestly means a lot to me as a Batman fan that he goes by his real name to Barbara at her worst moment. So to go back on that is an egregious error in my mind. Any continuity shifts from the crisis is null and void since both The Killing Joke and Suicide Squad take place post-crisis. So I have to assume that this really wasn't a scene where Babs doesn't know who Batman is. There's not a lick of sense about it otherwise. Come nightfall when Bruce is paralyzed, if she doesn't know, she heavily implies that she does. The issue during Zero Hour has both Oracle and the Time Displaced Batgirl call him Bruce as well. Moving on, your thoughts about the modern books heavily matched my own almost to the letter, would you believe? Particularly with the character interactions. I too picked up the flirty tension between Kadir and Batgirl and realized by this point that she's ensnared basically every single guy character in the book who wasn't a bad guy. She practically is James Bond. Will she become the next Dick Grayson and start racking up a tally on her bedpost? Shut up, bite your tongue, Donovan Morgan Grant. Honestly, I think I like Kadir the best out of the new supporting cast and would happily ship them. Because we know she's going to catch Luke Fox soon and that dick is returning, odds for that are slim. Still, Kadir's got a better shot than Jeremy. He's barely been in the book. How are you liking Bad Star's artwork? Cameron Stewart has stopped laying out the scenes for her and as a result, I think her work has looked better and better. What do you think? I also agree completely about Gordon must know that Backrow is Barbara. The shot of her at the end shows how faulty of a design the helmet is for keeping her identity secret. It's so obviously her. After hearing you vocally express your condemnation of Alicia's engagement, I'm inclined to agree. I still think the story isn't over, so it has a chance of not going through, but the real point is that an embargo on happy relationships in the DCU is dumb and short-sighted. So if Kate and Maggie were denied the first lesbian wedding in the DCU, why toss the ball to Alicia and a character she probably shouldn't be with? Finally, regarding the annual, I completely agree about Steph Brown's characterization. 
She has the rep for being positive and energetic to a fault, but this is practically a caricature. I would take that version over Quitney's, oh, Quitney, whoa, 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 trodden upon version during conversion. It's so funny, though, that today Gail Simone seems to have gotten the character the closest to her pre-Flashpoint characterization. Regarding Nightwing's buttocks, <laughs> my buttocks, I got shot in the buttocks, nice little uh, Forrest Gump reference. The ceremony was kicked off with a candid speech by the president regarding the need for further escalation of the war in Vietnam. President Johnson awarded four medals of honor to men from each of the armed services. America owes you a debt of gratitude, son. I understand you were wounded. Where were you hit? In the buttocks, sir. Oh, that must be a sight. I'd like to see that. The most important part of the annual, oh dear, the phenomenon goes back to a panel illustrated by Secret Six and Wonder Woman artist Nicola Scott. She first drew the female gazy shot of Dick's delineated gluteus maximus, and it caught fire with fans of Dick ever since. In a scene referenced by old Tom Panneries during New Teen Titans Convergence, Corey happily rests her palm on Dick's rear after the Titans win the battle. During this past SDCC, when you weren't looking, I actually talked to Scott at the DC booth, showed her that panel, and asked what her fascination was with Dick's butt. What a betrayal when I wasn't looking. She laughed and said she would always draw it whenever given the chance. So to know the source of the butt fad, it's Nicola Scott. Keep up the great work and remember that feet won't smell if they're washed and kept clean on a daily basis. Also, a shout out to Chris for the alliterative puns during his 66 reviews. Mind-boggling missives is my favorite since perplexing ponderables. Yours, DMG. <laughs> well, thank you for all of that. Yeah, you have no idea how close I am to getting into these 90s that you're talking about. In fact, this is the last episode with Suicide Squad coverage, which actually makes me sad but excited, and I'll let you guys know why I'm excited about that. I love how thoughtful you were about the Batman and Oracle interaction, and I think that makes a lot of sense, obviously, if, if we go with the hidden cameras. I mean, it may have been some sort of mistake, but I think if we're to explain it, that, that could certainly be. I, you know, the only thing I could come up with is that she was just so out of it emotionally that she didn't hear Bruce in the hospital, but there seemed to be other times that she was aware of his identity, so that, that doesn't really jive. Bah, bah, bah. As for Bab Tar's artwork, I love it. Um, yeah, I guess that was something I didn't mention, but I noticed right away on, I guess it was 42, that she was on her own. Normally, can't. Uh, yeah, Stuart was mapping out, basically, laying it down, and then she w was filling in, and now it's all her, and I love that. I think that was great. I, I mean, it's almost like... Like a, a very good mentor, mentory role, and then you know stepping back and letting her fill in and and become her own artist. And she has such talent, anyways, that I, I'm I'm just happy that she's on the book and now she can really make it her own. And and I love her uh, her facial expressions that she uses on people and and sort of the the kick-ass expression that she has on bad space. I will talk about the Alicia and. Joe engagement after the halfway point. Uh, I'll bring that up again. I think that's it. I mean, the butt shot, thank you for letting me know the history of the butts. It would certainly be interesting to do a little history segment. You know how Dustin loves his history and just the, the history of Dick's butt. And it's funny because with this, attached to this email, I had four different screenshots of uh, 
Dick Grayson's butt in his Nightwing costume. I posted that, you know, what a day when you get screenshots of uh, Nightwing's butt on Facebook and people were wondering what was going on. Yes, thanks. Yeah, Chris, you know, I, I feel like maybe I don't shout out to Chris Carnes as much for his 66 review, but I'm so appreciative of that. I'm sure he will appreciate that you are appreciative as well. So thank you, Donovan Morgan Grant. And uh, that is true about the feet. It seems like you might be the type of person who likes stinky or clean feet. We'll have to do some more investigation as the, uh, the year goes on. Next up from Doug to the wonderful Stella. I just finished reading Batgirl Year One. Thank you for the recommendation. While my only previous exposure to Barbara has been in other Bat Family comics, TV, movies, and video games, this gave me a good foundation as to who Barbara is. It also gave me a new perspective and appreciation for Dick Grayson as well, and to a lesser extent, Batman. I've started reading Batgirl Burnside, and so far I am enjoying it. One question I have is what happened between Dinah and Barbara in the previous run. How do you think the events of the killing joke to Barbara compare in contrast to what happened to Dinah in the Longbow Hunters? While the attack on Barbara and Jim was a calculated personal attack, what happened to Dinah happened to be a wrong place, wrong time scenario. Your thoughts? I think we can all agree that Batgirl is a great role model for women and girls. How do you think she ranks with the other females in the DCU, more specifically Wonder Woman and Supergirl? Also, how would you get a boy interested in Batgirl who may otherwise not think twice about her since she's a girl superhero? Barbara has given DC and its readers two of the most iconic comic book characters ever in Batgirl and Oracle. At the relaunch with the New 52 post-Flashpoint, DC decided to make Barbara Batgirl again and abandon Oracle. Would you, given the chance, have made the same decision, or would you have kept Barbara as Oracle and given Batgirl to Stephanie Brown or Cassandra Kane, keeping both characters going? Finally, with the mantle of Oracle currently abandoned, what are your thoughts about Felicity Smoke taking it over? I know this is a hot topic among comic readers and people who just watch the show. Now that Felicity has been introduced into the mainstream DCU in the previous Green Arrow creative team run, and not just in the Arrowverse, I think it would be good to get her out of Oliver's quiver and expand her character. Now hear me out. What about a new Birds of Prey with Batgirl, Black Canary, or Katana, Bluebird, and a Felicity Smoke Oracle? Just throwing it out there. Again, great podcast from an awesome person. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Doug. Now, you have many questions. So let me go question by question here. So first question you said is, what happened between Dinah and Barbara in the Gail Simone run of uh, Batgirl or, you know, what was going on? The problems that they are encountering does not happen in the Gail Simone run, but actually happened in the tail end of birds of prey by christy marks and uh, there was just some deception uh with dinah she was keeping hold of some things and it was mostly between dinah and kurt her husband who was in a coma and then rachel ghoul came into play and offered to help dinah by reviving her husband if she would help him and she just kept a lot of things to herself and was not letting her teammates know and this caused or put the team in danger and Batgirl sort of walked away from this and, and couldn't really forgive her. So there's that one side and then of course we come in on the fact that Dinah's stuff was like all torched 
her her dojo and of course barbara had her stuff in there which made dinah upset and it was probably barbara's fault that it got torched so dinah's upset so it's all coming from birds of prey but then there's a lot of stuff that's going on in the beginning of the burnside run so hopefully you, you don't get too uh too messed up with that the next question was what do i think about killing joke to barbara as the longbow hunters to dinah and i just read the longbow hunters over the summer it was actually the last day it was monday i had gone to see despic nope the minion movie with josh bertoni and then we went over to barnes and noble and i i read there i i sat and read and it has that sexual salt quality to it which sounds terrible coming out of my mouth and the fact that if i remember correctly she is hanging up and like i feel like she doesn't have all of her clothes on she at least has a shirt on and maybe underwear it's it's been a i mean a month but a lot of stuff has happened to me in this month so um it has that quality i still find the killing joke worse if only because the photographs the photographs just make it so much worse and then that ride that jim has to go on and clearly dinah was beat up i mean they're both bad they're both bad and i think part of the reason so i i think the photographs is really bad and just you know her expression the photographs and just the various states of undress and you don't know what's going on whereas for dinah there may have been like she was probably stripped to a certain extent she was beat up but maybe things didn't go as far but she's they're both victims i think we have to be clear about that and i think perhaps the reason why um the barbara gordon one gets to me more is because i'm closer to that character and i feel like anyone you know someone who is a, a lover of dinah lance um which i love black and i love dinah lance but that person may feel like that one's harder but i i just feel like i mean being shot being unable to to take care of herself which both of those have in common but then someone else being subjected to these um photographs and not being able to do anything whereas ollie once he finds her at least he can rescue her so both of them are victims both of them passive but at least ollie could play some sort of active role in helping her out whereas um jim couldn't do anything either and so you, you not only see what happened to babs but you see what happened to babs through jim's eyes and i think that's uh worth because he can't do anything whereas you see what happened to dinah in all his eyes but he can like exact vengeance but that's coming from someone who read that a little while ago and can't remember so those are my thoughts but uh if any of you have any thoughts or or doug what do you think in 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 comparison between the two do you think one is worse than the other they're both victims they're both it's i mean they're both pretty bad um i just think that the the killing joke i just think it it really impacts me um, a great deal and i think it, it it impacted me a little bit more than the longbow hunter one though that was still tough to read while i was sitting there in barnes and noble then you ask about Wonder Woman and Supergirl and what do I, I think about her ranking with other females in the DCU. And that's really interesting because I just listened to a podcast and I'm trying to think specifically which one it was. And I think it was Professor Allen 
and it was um, the boom and the bust, I think. And, uh, you know, they were talking about Turok. And then, I, you know, Shag came on, whoever he is. And they talked about Supergirl and, and Wonder Woman. I think it was. I was some other thing. But I, I remember it was a guy because he said, you know, I don't know. But I assume that girls look up to these two. And I think that's true. I think that girls, little girls really, like, for example... I know someone, her name is Molly. She is the younger sister of Jacob, in fact. Uh, she is in the fourth grade now, if I'm not mistaken, mistaken but she loves Wonder Woman and Hawkgirl. You know, I, I lent them my, my Justice League DVDs. So I think she looks up to Wonder Woman. I think she would look up to Supergirl. What, how I always make a distinction between those two and especially I think Wonder Woman and Batgirl or you know Supergirl and Batgirl is the fact that Batgirl is more personally relatable and I think Wonder Woman and Supergirl these are two girls especially Wonder Woman I think someone that you can look up to and idolize and like wish you could be but Batgirl is someone that you could actually be I just think not only because she doesn't have a power set, but just it, it seems like she is in every woman and her intelligence and, you know, having these real life jobs and everything and going through uh, troubles that people face. Whereas Wonder Woman, I mean, she was born on an island. There's mythology involved with it. She's super powerful. Supergirl is an alien. You know, those are ones that are fun and like you wish you could be, but Batgirl, you could actually be. So that's what that's what I think. So that's why when Barbara does things that I don't feel like are in character, that's why it really bothers me because I'm like, you know, I feel like girls could be this person and, and could look up to her and could be like a big sister. So I think you have to make her a good representation. How would I get a boy interested in Batgirl? That's tough. And I think you have to sneakily do it. If I were to interest any boy in a specific Batgirl, I would say it would be Cassandra Cain. Um, I think that her personality as well as her fighting style and the book itself that she was in is catered more. I think it, it would be easier for a boy to latch onto her than it would for Barbara Gordon and Stephanie Brown and how their personalities are. But if you want to get them into Batgirl period, I think you got to do it a little sneaky sneaky. So I would recommend uh, giving them no man's land for one or just Batman issues that, you know, Batgirl appears and you get a taste of her. So that's what I, I would say. So, for example, you said you finished Batgirl Year One. Congrats and amazing life decision that you made, Doug. I think you have to, hopefully you got the one that is the Batgirl Year One and Robin Year One. If you got that, then you give them Robin Year One. You tell them, read this. They get super excited and you're like, hey, Robin and Batman are in this one too. And then they read Batgirl Year One. You got to be sneaky with those those guys. Oh, we talk about New 52. What would I, would I have made the same decision about making Barbara again? So here's the thing. I think we had something really good going with Team Batgirl when we had 
Stephanie Brown, we had Wendy as sort of the Oracle proxy, and then we had Barbara Gordon as Oracle, obviously, uh, being a mentor, and we lost that. And so if 52 still had some semblance of what was going on, I, I think I, even though, you know, all that stuff still happened, but there was, I mean, it was, it was still a reboot. Let's be honest, people. I would have kept that team. I would have kept it. I think we were in uh, a good jive and I think people were getting used to it and they liked Oracle. And I think having Oracle there, you were able to do those possibilities. If you want to switch things up and start from scratch, honestly, if you're not going to do uh, Betty Kane, Honestly, you, you got to put Barbara in the cowl and then somehow set her down that path to become uh, Oracle again. Not having the catalyst be the killing joke, but somehow uh, I, I think that's just if you're doing Origins again, then she's got to be that one in the cowl. So just depends on was there a connection or a complete break. And finally, you talk about Felicity Smoke. The Birds of Prey, I think that certainly works. I would say that probably I would have Batgirl, Stephanie Brown, uh, rather than Black Canary and Katana, especially since Black Canary is doing her own thing. Bluebird, I would certainly allow. Felicity Smoke Oracle, that's tough. So I, I love Felicity Smoke. I haven't read her in this book, but you've got to somehow make them interact before you create a Birds of Prey. There's got to be some sort of uh, ch uh, connection between those two books. And I haven't really seen Batman and Green Arrow interact ever, I think, in the New 50. I personally haven't. I'm sure it's happened, but I haven't. So you've got to do that. You can't just create a Birds of Prey book and, and have that happen. But honestly, you could do Frankie, and that would make almost more sense. So I would do Batgirl, Spoiler, Bluebird, and then Frankie. The problem is, Batgirl is the veteran on that team. So there's got to be somebody else on that uh squad and uh it'll it would almost be interesting to have catwoman on there probably not selena kyle but the the other catwoman that's running around if she's not dead spoiler but uh yeah you've got to have some other person so black canary would be good but she's doing her own thing so i'm not sure how you would do that and that's it for dogs so hopefully i answer all those questions and next up and finally from chris franklin he says hi stella i greatly enjoyed your guest spot along with tom on fire and water podcast so i followed you over to your show thank you for my that background oracle has been on my list of podcasts to get back into for some time i listened a while back but the network here at work decided to want to ban a lot of podcasts i was listening to so i had to drop out for some reason which i won't question that's changed so here i am i'm surprised mine was banned but hey I don't see how the Starfire hating Shag could be an impartial judge, but I agree that Dick and Babs are the couple to beat. But I also agree with Tom that Dick needed to have that grown-up relationship before he and Babs could get serious. It's less important if you go with Dick and Babs being closer in age, but I still think it helped. As a kid, I was a big Dick and Corey booster, but it's obvious now they had way too many problems to overcome, mostly coming from Dick's identity issues. I have a conspiracy theory that Devin Grayson and Judd Winnick were sent by Dan DiDio from the future of the New 52 to disrupt the post-crisis DC universe, hence the god-awful crap Winnick had Dick pull, i.e. sleeping with Corey moments before proposing to Barbara. No defending that. But I will give Devin Grayson credit for treating the Dick and Corey relationship as something that was in the past and best left there. They had both moved on, but comic writers, as we often notice, sometimes just can't. 
Very touching tribute to Yvonne Craig from you and Shag at the beginning of the show. Craig's Batgirl was very important to me as a kid and not only introduced me to and fostered my love for the Batgirl character, but she was a very early crush before I was old enough to even know girls didn't have cooties. She's a big hero to my wife Cindy and daughter Danny as well, and she'll always stop by the couch if I'm watching a Batman 66 episode with Batgirl. Great show, and I look forward to more and digging through your back catalog. Chris Franklin and Chris and his wife do a podcast called the Super Mates Podcast. So definitely check that out. So thank you to all the people who wrote in at the Batman Universe and commented on those episodes and emailed me. Remember, you can email me at oracle at gmail.com. That is it for that. And now we have... The last set of Suicide Squad issues that I will cover, well, I guess unless she appears or something in the uh, new stuff, <sighs> for Batgirl to Oracle, how sad. So that's sad, right? But the exciting thing is, because I'm wrapping this up, John Ostrander has agreed to an actual, uh, a fuller interview uh, talking about Suicide Squad. So... You can send me any questions that you want to ask Mr. Ostrander to backrolltheoracle at gmail.com. And specifically, what I'm thinking about, while I may talk about uh, the book as a whole, I'm certainly going to be focusing on Babs and a little bit of uh, Amanda Waller as well. So you can ask something that may be more specific as to other team members, but uh, that's probably where I'm going to be focusing my interview. So we've got the last storyline four issues and I just want to make a note that I will be referring to a team as the Faux Suicide Squad and they include Bolt, Shrapnel, Deadline, Sudden Death, yes that's Sudden Death, and Blockbuster, the Roland Desmond one, and Task Force X includes Caliber, Metamorpheus, Pathfinder, and Sidewinder. So these teams will be popping up in my recaps and just wanted to mention who they were so here we go the last suicide squad story literally so first is suicide squad number 63 true minds march 1992 is the cover date writers john ostrander and camille pencil jeff isherwood inker robert campanella and andrew pepoy and colorist tom mccraw Diablo Verde, an island on the edge of the Bermuda Triangle, is the place where a terrified man is currently running through the streets, chased by a group of metahumans working for the leader of the government by the name of Guedhe. Uh, sound like a familiar idea there? This turns out to be a distraction so that his daughter can flee the island, which she does with the help of a friend. Her goal is to find Amanda Waller and kill her in order to free everyone on this island. At the IMHS, Waller and LaGrieve are having a friendly chat when they enter into a room where a couple of familiar faces, for example, Dybuk and Ramban. Waller hopes that Dybuk can help to program Ifrit and get her back to the personality of Mindboggler, and Oracle helps create the interface, and then they wait. Elsewhere in the Institute, Maria from the island comes upon Boomerang at gunpoint and demands to see Waller. Lawton gets a banged-up package, which is his old suit, from Ducard, and decides to put it on once more. 
Carmichael is hooked up to a computer having some fun when someone contacts him through the line and tells him a plan, though we don't know what it is. And Vertigo is offered a position in the Vatava government in order to help clean it up. Maria and Boomerang appear in the room with Waller and Ramban BSs his way through a Doctor Strange spell, no joke because he actually mentions it, and a spooked Boomerang flips Maria and sits on her. Suddenly, Dybuk, now named Lenny for some reason, and Ifrit, now named Leah, appeared and wished to get married. Everyone is for it except for the Israeli G-Man who's standing there. After that distraction, Waller turns her attention back to Maria, who accuses Waller of sending her suicide squad to her island. Waller demands more information, and then Waller contacts Sarge Steele, who tells her the group on the island are CIA, who borrowed a page from her book, similar to what we saw in the last story with Ledger Domain. Waller takes a peso from Maria, and thus she has hired the Suicide Squad for their last mission. And this leads us into Suicide Squad number 64, Nasty as They Want to Be, April 1992. Writers John Ostrander and Kim Yale, penciler Jeff Isherwood, inker Robert Campanella and Andrew Papoy, and colorist Tom McCraw. In Annapolis, Maryland, Ray Palmer, as the Adam now, is escorting Black Snake, which is from the previous story, to a police station and is assaulted by the media. The police take Black Snake and let Adam deal with the news stations. Outside, a group calling themselves Task Force X break into the station and one of them changes into an officer and kills Black Snake. The group kills more officers and sets charges to blow up the station. Adam hears the commotion and goes after them, which actually saves him from getting exploded. What the f***? At IMHS, Waller gives a breakdown of the mission to the group, talks about the leader of the government, Gwedhe, and the group that seems like the Suicide Squad. Oh, and uh, don't call him Lawton because he's dead shot again. But tonight, don't call it a comeback! John Henry Martin, a.k.a. Outlaw, and Nightshade do a recon of the island and the faux Suicide Squad. The actual Suicide Squad and Maria, for some reason, go through a transportation hole that Nightshade creates. But before Waller leaves, Oracle tells her what happened to Black Snake and Adam at the police station. Waller gives more specific assignments to the team when they arrive in situ and what members of the other team they should go up against. Ivy uses her seduction to put sudden death, yes, Shag Matthews' favorite character from the Hawk and Dove stuff we covered, under her control. Waller and Carmichael get ready to bust into the president's house and Waller tells Oracle to loosen the controls on Carmichael. She then sees the president's not there, but it's too late because Carmichael uses his powers to tell Waller to put her gun in her mouth and pull the trigger. Then we go to Suicide Squad number 65, Run Through the Jungle, May 1992 cover date. Writers John Ostrander and Kim Yale, penciler Jeff Isherwood, inker Robert Campanella, and colorist Tom McCraw. The various fights between members of the squad and foe squad continue. Nightshade gets injured by a special weapon, but she ends up escaping. At the president's house, Carmichael delays his command long enough to tell Amanda that the Cabal contacted him via modem and he is helping them. He also was able to override her controls. Suddenly, Maria hits Carmichael with a chair, WWE style, and saves Amanda, but Carmichael gets away. Unfortunately, Oracle cannot fry him because of what he did to his own programming. 
Waller knows now that they have to go through the jungle to get to the president's other HQ, but Maria warns Amanda that strange and dangerous things happen there. It is the green devil, after all, Diablo Verde. Waller updates Oracle and vice versa. Oracle tells Amanda that Task Force X is hunting the squad, and we see some of the squad fight some members of the force. Shortly, the squad reconvenes. Vertigo raises a fuss over Ivy, and Ivy tries to quit since she has her bodyguard sudden death. But Waller threatens her and tells everyone that she has not gone soft, even though she does have a heart that we know now. Ivy remains on the team and leaves sudden death behind. The team goes through the jungle and encounters different visions. So Ben sees himself as the bronze tiger with the mask that he used to wear, the tiger mask, and he beats his younger self and he sort of figuratively or metaphorically puts back the mask on and like powers up almost. And then Boomerang sees various members of the Justice League, kind of like devilish members of them. Inside his cave, we see Gwedhe drinking blood from a goblet with the foe squad gathered around him, and he is saying he will have the squad's souls and will be invincible. And this leads us to the final issue of the story and the final issue of the series, Suicide Squad number 66, and be a villain, June 1992, cover date. Writers John Ostrander and Camille Breakdowns, Jeff Isherwood, finishes Robert Campanella, and colorist Tom McCraw. Task Force X continues stalking the squad through the jungle while the squad struggles with the visions. Amanda sees all the squad members who have died. Vertigo is tempted to commit suicide, which she has been for several issues now. Nightshade is visited by Enchantress and others whom I don't recognize, but one is her mother basically dooming her to hell. And the one interesting one, I think, is Deadshot, who is just going through the forest and doesn't envision anything. Very interesting. The squad gets closer to the cave and Waller gives more specific instructions. She tells Ivy to get sudden death again, who then helps fight against the foe squad because he's under Ivy's suggestion. There are more fights between the squad, the foe squad, and Task Force X while Amanda and Maria enter the cave. We then find out that Maria is married to Gwedhe, who apparently cannot die peacefully because of his powers. Outside, during the fight, Boomerang and Nightshade are injured. Inside, Waller tells Gwedhe that she has the power to kill and shows him by killing Maria, who drops dead. He accepts her help as he has wanted to die for a while. Outside, the fight ends, and inside, Maria wakes up after Waller administers an antidote, explaining that she used one of Ivy's neurotoxins to simulate death. Gwedhe, his mind keeping him from dying, finally found a way to believe he could die and did with Amanda's help. Later in the capital, there is joy in the streets, but Waller, well, she's not that happy. She's tired and she's shutting the squad down. The squad is flawed, she doesn't like the dark reflection she has seen in the foe squad in Task Force X, and it's just time to stop and find something new. Maria offers her the office of President of Diablo Verde, and she threatens to name Ben, well, Waller threatens to name Ben, her Secretary of State, since he keeps laughing at her. She's already making plans, while elsewhere Deadshot aims at Vertigo, while Vertigo decides whether to live or die. And he decides to live. I have to say that this may be the best story arc of what I have read of the Suicide Squad, even though Babs, aka Amy Beddows, is not highlighted. 
I like how right off the bat it connects to what happened in the Ledger Domain storyline. Since we again see a team that was created and modeled after Waller's Suicide Squad idea, and here it's not a good thing, again. And this also happens later with Task Force X, but their purpose is more to destroy the squad. I like that Waller's trying to do right by her current and former members, here represented by Mindboggler and Ifrit. And it was a bit of a random aside, especially with everything else going on and then the wedding. But perhaps Ostrander and Yale wanted to tie this up before the squad goes to Diablo Verde and before the book actually ends. It's also interesting to see members of Hayoth again, connecting back to the previous storyline and, and building a relationship b between the two teams, which is something that I would not have seen, you know, just coming from that previous storyline. I'm also surprised to see Lawton take on the guise of Deadshot again, but I guess it was only a matter of time. But if you think back to that cover, to the coverage that we did over there, I mean, he went through so much to get rid of that identity, so to just put it back on is interesting. With the Thinker, who will eventually leave the team, I do wonder why Waller would let him jack in at any time. And this is something that started previously to get information, but my goodness, now he just gets to, that's like his extracurricular activity? It seems foolish. And at first I thought Ifrit would take over his body, that's what I was expecting, that she would be evil and this would be the um, the main bad guy, but it turned out to be the Cabal. So will the Thinker join the Cabal? What, what do we have to expect from Carmichael? We also have the side scene of Vertigo. So little by little the team members are setting up another life that they will potentially fulfill after this last mission. It was a little weird in the beginning uh, where Waller gets distracted from Maria and Boomerang by Ifrit and, and Dybuk, you know, wanting to get married, but I guess it was the only way to tie that up, but then she's like, okay, hold the phone, let's get back to the real issue at hand. I liked the scene where Waller takes a peso for Maria, and that is the pay, because, you know, you always have to sort of contract them out, and that's all that Maria had, and, you know, Waller and Boomerang have had it, have it out, and, and they always butt heads, it seems, uh, secretly, perhaps, because... Well, I think Waller makes no secret that she doesn't like Boomerang since she calls him Boomer Butt. But he always thinks that, you know, she deserves anything she gets. She, he said that she deserved to be in the hospital bed and wants to take her out. So it, it finally comes to a head here. But I'm surprised Boomerang didn't get some sort of side story here with all the bridges that he has burned on the team. So he's someone that sort of gets left out. The next part has another shocking intro. And again, it's good because... Hey, it brings us back to Ray Palmer, Black Snake, and, and even Adam Cray. And here we see the Cabal keeps its promises and gets rid of the members that fail, which was a theme that we had seen previously. I like the interactions between Outlaw and Nightshade and their reconnaissance. But speaking of someone who really shouldn't be on the mission, Maria. Why would Waller bring her along? I thought this was a bad idea all along, and it really only helped out in order to find the headquarters of Gwedhei and Waller using her as a prop. And then, of course, yeah, she does save Waller from the Thinker, but what other purpose does Maria serve? This storyline also sees members trying to leave the squad in various ways, whether it's Ivy with sudden death or Thinker. So I guess we should have seen some sort of threads that this was the end, even though I was telling you it was the end. If you were a reader at that time, would you have seen that, oh, something's amiss, something's going on? The story has lots of fights interspersed throughout, and I liked this rather than a long, drawn-out fight because we got to see different players from different teams interact, and we got more development on the stories and characters apart from the fighting. And even though we did have three teams here, I didn't feel like it was too much or overwhelming as I have in the past stories with more than just the squad appearing. So I thought it, it was just very 
even keel. It was it was just well planned out and thought out. I really liked the the scenes in the jungle with the different characters facing different fears or trials. Those that was probably um, one of my favorite parts over those two issues. And it was also interesting, like I mentioned before, that you know at the bottom of these pages showing these different trials of the characters, you just see Lawton walking. You see Deadshot walking with nothing strange happening to him. And I just wonder, what does that mean? Is it because he has already gone through a trial getting rid of his outfit? Or does he have no conscience at all and therefore doesn't have anything that haunts him? Didn't his daughter play a big role in his life? So, just a big question mark there. Nightshade's trials are also strange, and I don't know the character well enough to explain what's going on here. So anyone who can help me out with that and explain what's going on in, in issue 65, I guess, or 66, uh, would be lovely. I tried to look up a little bit about her past, but that was not really helpful. So anyone with uh, some Suicide Squad nightshade expertise let me know who these people are that are haunting her i was a bit let down by the villain in the end and the explanation of how he was living in mind alone while his body withered away and was dead and all waller had to do was convince his mind that he was dead i just thought that was a little too much i mean there wasn't much of a fight there and i would have liked more detail as to how he got the foe squad going why they were following him what his big plans were etc i mean you have these people behind you you think he's kind of this big wig and he looks very sinister but he's introduced the second at the very end of the second last issue and he only appears a little bit not that big of a foe is more about the squad versus themselves the squad versus the other teams and then you know breaking up and and going away and, and less about this guy and then of course in a twist the story ends happily with waller giving up the squad and potentially become a politician and vertigo choosing to live so what uh i mean it's crazy how suicide squad is very up and down emotionally and and here we we end on an up and on the oracle front there wasn't really much here since she was on the sidelines and only popped in to help waller with ifrit or give her some info so my question is Where's she going to go if the squad is shut down? And that's, of course, something that hopefully Backroll the Oracle, this podcast, will answer. I really like this story. I thought the action, exposition, and development all flowed really well together. And it was just a really great way to end the Suicide Squad. And I really recommend this story. Though it would be hard for people who didn't know the characters, but just top-notch. And like I said, I think perhaps one of the my favorite uh, story arcs that I have read the run that I've been reading. So I'm going to give this 9 out of 10 crosshairs. So the final thing before I leave you with the vintage issues in Suicide Squad is that the letters page or the suicide notes was actually written to Dan Raspler from John Ostrander and he sort of traces the history with him and Kim and going through the the Suicide Squad and and their favorite moments and everything and just you know I, I love his line perhaps the most compelling character has been the wall besides the history he also goes through his own and Kim's their own favorite moments of the whole series and it's rather long so I'm not going to read it here but if you have a chance and you can find this, I would definitely look this up. Two of the moments uh, that Kim lists is the moment when Barbara Gordon assumes leadership of the squad during the Dragon's Horde storyline and the confrontation between Barbara and Batman. Uh, so Barbara, of course, does pop up. But uh, it's just interesting to, to get his thoughts on that as like sort of retrospective on this last issue so rest in peace suicide squad 
volume one. And, and yes, that is it for Suicide Squad. It's kind of weird to say. Like, you, you when you start these things, you sort of imagine going on for a while. Never, never ending. It would just keep on going. But here we are ending it. So I guess I'll leave it there. I'm going to take a break. And when I come back, I'm going to review Batgirl number 43 and Gotham Academy number 9. But first is Zias's Radio Hour, and it is featuring She-Wolf by Sia and David Guetta. A shot in the dark, a past, lost in space. Where do I start? The past and the chance.
Hello and welcome back. Now before I forget, I did want to mention two things and it's sort of funny because I don't really talk about myself and here I am, I already shared something at the top of the podcast and here I'm going to promote myself uh, that I appeared on other podcasts that have recently come out. So first of all, you know of course of the Dick and Babs versus Dick and Corey debate that happened here with Shag and Tom. And that was part two of this three-part crossover, so you can go over to the Fire and Water podcast and listen to part one, where we talk about our history with comics, how we got into it. And then part three just released, and that is over at Pop Culture Affidavit with Tom Panarese, and we talk about those films that maybe are diamonds in the rough that not many people know of, but we go back to time and again. And that will complete the Shag Matthews World Tour as well as the three-part crossover that we have. And I also, for whatever reason, I don't know what's going on with me, but I also did a podcast with Shag on the Fire and Water podcast, and we did an Elseworlds story, because I love Elseworlds. We did Thrill Killer. So I definitely, fun conversations to be had over there as, as we go through that story that's that takes place in the 60s. And is actually Barbara Gordon-led. Bruce is sort of in the background. And then at the end, he... Well, I, I shan't say. Definitely a great story that I recommend reading. It's it's fun. So, yes. So enough about that. But I guess one more thing about me before I get into these reviews is, if you recall on the previous episode, regular episode, I should say, episode 104, I went on a bit of a diatribe or a soapbox on the Elijah and Joe engagement and what does this mean if you know are they going to get married if they do get married how should we as fans take that and react to that since Kate and Maggie were given you know the next they, they weren't allowed to to do that so I ended up writing an article an editorial and an analysis of this situation basically almost going back to when we were told, I guess last year, that, you know, superheroes couldn't have happy lives. And of course, the Batman family was primarily what was focused on. But of course, we know that Arthur and Mira also cannot be married at this time. And so going through and just saying how much or how many victims that has created in DC Comics publishing, and that Kate and Maggie is certainly one of them. And Alicia and Joe, while I'm not going to say that they should be a victim, I think there's just a problem if they're allowed to go through with this marriage, even though they are tertiary characters, whereas Kate and Maggie, who were at the forefront and could have been great pioneers for this for DC Comics... They were not allowed. And so that's, you know, my my main proposal there, my thesis. And then I actually break down the history of these two couples in a side-by-side column with images, just tracing it. And you can see the disparity between the two and just how stacked Kate and Maggie and their relationship is compared to Alicia and Joe. So I do recommend going on to batmanuniverse.net and checking out the Shipper Spotlight, the uh, Kate and Maggie retrospective that I recently did. So now, that is enough about me. Now let's get into the new reviews. So first up we have Batgirl 43, Tooth and Claw. Yeah, you know it. It is going to be 
the first appearance of the newly renovated, I guess I don't have to say newly, but the renovated, reinvented Velvet Tiger. So I know that Barton is out there doing a little dance. Writers Brendan Fletcher and Cameron Stewart. Artist Babs Tar, Inger Juan Castro. I actually know him. And breakdowns Babs Tar and Michael Lacombe and color Sergey Lapointe. At Fox Tech, an employee working late is attacked by a tiger. At Alicia's apartment, Babs and Alicia are doing some wedding planning when Frankie calls Babs to tell her what happened at Fox Tech. Before she jets off, we learn that Alicia has backed off a little from the activism, but Joe has stepped it up. And speaking of Joe, she seems a little out of it as she says hi to Babs on her way out. At Fox Tech, Luke fills Batgirl in on the victim, a new hire and programmer. She tries to comfort Luke, and a snooping Kadir takes this as flirting. Batgirl uses some of her tech to find out that the last person who accessed the office was Kadir? This shocks Kadir out of hiding and he tries to defend himself, but Luke tells him to go home. In the garage below, Batgirl expands her motorcycle, which for some reason is hanging in the rafters above, while Kadir tries to explain and ask about Luke and Batgirl's relationship. It's just professional, is what Batgirl says. Later the next day at Burnside College, Nadima tries to defend her brother and tells Babs that he couldn't survive jail. When Jeremy rudely bumps into the girls and stomps off, apparently he had a dinner with his ex-girlfriend Lonnie. Yeah, you know who that is. Babs then hears that there was a second tiger attack, now at Vitasoft. She goes there as Batgirl and discovers Frankie already there investigating, and Batgirl gets upset and tells her she can't do field work. Batgirl gets interrupted when she remembers that she needs to meet Alicia, and Frankie decides to just continue what she was doing. Alicia is trying on wedding dresses when Babs receives a notification that Valerie Sokorova matches some criteria that places her as the next victim. She rushes off to buy tech and rescues Valerie just in time and has to fight off and capture the attacking tiger. At home, Babs is patched up by Frankie while she explains that Jeremy is the connection between all the victims. Babs simply can't believe it and she's also upset that Frankie continues to do investigations into the crime. A frustrated Frankie takes Batgirl's cowl and dresses up in some Halle Berry Catwoman wear and visits Kadir to ask for some tech. She convinces him that she is Batgirl's partner and he goes along with it. Elsewhere, Joe creeps into a building while a one-sided text conversation to Alicia explains what she has been doing and how she feels she has failed her. It seems she and her activist gang got a tip on an illegal shipment of tigers and held them until they could place them with the proper authorities. It looks like she and her friends were duped and the tigers were released to kill the tech employees. Joe goes to free the tigers, but she is in danger herself as Velvet Tiger appears and puts her in a death grip. Next, the Velvet Tiger. Well, let me just get it off my chest now, talking about the uh, the Velvet Tiger here. I really like, and we, when I did the interview at San Diego Comic-Con, Babs Tar, you know, certainly agreed that uh, her design and her costume was a little weird way back when in the... Uh, <laughs> in the Bronze Age, and I really do like her redesign here, and she certainly, I think, keeps the Lonnie Gilbert aspects that Martin certainly uh, knows and loves. But yeah, I, I think certainly her costume is better, better designed. I'm sure Shag will say that it is hot. In a way, she almost reminds me a little bit of a, a meld between Sabretooth because she has that fur on over her shoulders that Sabretooth does and cheetah uh just with her her face and everything but I, I will start with that and say hey it's a pretty good redesign so i'm okay with that 
Okay, I'm going to start talking about Joe and this activism. So, I think we need to get to know this character a little bit more. And, you know, some people may say, why care about this particular person? Um, I, I certainly potentially could have been that person saying that very same thing when we met her with Ragdoll, and then we met her when Babs walked in because there wasn't anything on the door and they were just doing something scandalous in the common area of all places. So I wouldn't have cared. But now I feel like I do need to care about her if, in fact, this marriage is going to go through because I think it's a it's a monumentous event to have, you know, a lesbian couple get married. This could potentially be the first lesbian couple in DC Comics. I think that's pretty groundbreaking so we should care about these characters so I want to know more about Joe and I'm not really given too much here and, and it's sort of weird because we've only been getting to know her little by little uh, and I really mean little by little as in words maybe just one panel I remember in Gail Simone's run basically she was nice she seems nice that's all we ever learned about her and so now, bam, she's really on the page. We see her more often. But she's tired. Babs doesn't seem like she's getting a good vibe from her because there are question marks by her. I don't know what to think about her. Here's a concern I have. And if you look in your, your book, it's about on page four or so, without the ads anyways. So we talk about uh, the activism. So let me, these are some quotes that Alicia has. She's looking at picture of them she's got hearts around there so bad says is joe even home and alicia says yeah she's in bed she's been exhausted lately too many late nights with our group i've had to pull back a bit to get our future planned so joe has been working for both of us she's always been a better activist than me okay so up until that last line i was thinking to myself okay so both of these may still be doing their activism, but they're, they've got an actual job on the side. And now uh, Alicia has sort of pulled back, but Joe has been stepping up her work to you know get the funds so that they can afford a life together and be married. But in fact, no, she's only talking about activism. So my question here is, do these people have a real job? Does Joe have a real job? We can assume that Alicia is still her little... She's got her bartender gig. But Joe, what does she do? Is she only doing activism? Activism doesn't really pay. It may pay in your heart and your soul because you feel like what you're doing is right. But uh, she's not bringing home any money. So in my opinion, I um, would be concerned at this partnership or if I were dating someone who is only an activist, I would wonder how uh, we're supposed to keep a roof over our head and have a shared life when in fact I'm the only one bringing home the bacon. So that is my concern. And then of course, Joe isn't really portrayed that good at all anyways at the very end where she's, you know, they get this call. Isn't this the second time that she has been involved in a group where they have gotten a call and they were played? It happened in Ragdoll and the same thing is happening again. And for me, that makes it seem like these people do not check out their sources. So she's told to go and get these tigers then there are these tiger attacks. She feels like something, something is up. Then for some reason she decides to free the tigers and try to draw them into a truck. She's got stakes. I guess she doesn't think her life is at all in danger. But 
I, I don't know. You know, I'm not a... Alicia is not my favorite character, but I feel like she could potentially do better. So, you know, there, there are many points against Jill right now, and she's really got to step it up if I'm going to care about her and care about the future of this relationship. I also, you know, speaking of Alicia, the Babs and Alicia relationship, this is very interesting because as Frankie and Babs almost are starting to drift apart, and that's too heavy for right now. They're not really drifting apart, but they're having some issues, right? They're having some conflicts of interest or just conflict of ideas. Alicia and Babs are coming back together, and we haven't really seen these two hang out too much since Babs moved to Burnside. But I foresee issues with this because Babs has already ran out on Alicia twice, and twice in one issue. And since it's for wedding planning, for someone and your maid of honor to run out on you while you're doing these important things, and you know you're relying on that person a great deal, I think that there's going to be some sort of conflict also, and there's going to be some sort of blow up. I don't know if Alicia is going to actually figure out that Babs is Batgirl, though that would certainly be interesting. And, you know, as I was talking, I was also thinking, goodness, what if Joe dies and that's the way to prevent the marriage? And then Alicia takes up her vigilante garb, which is something that Gail Simone intended. Who knows? But anyway, that's a little breadcrumb. So I, I think something something is going to blow up at some point between Babs and Alicia because Babs can't keep doing that without Alicia getting upset. And then we have Frankie. And this is hard because, you know, Frankie entered in on this knowing everything. But I think Babs was also pretty clear at the outset that you are going to be at home base and you are going to basically be the oracle, right? You're going to give me leads, help me tech-wise, and, and be the voice in my ear. And Frankie, I guess, just is unhappy with this. And apparently now we're going to have this sort of discussion and conflict every issue because it happened the previous one. It happened twice here. And I think Babs is right in, in what she is saying. Uh, number one, Frankie is on her crutches again. It sort of goes back and forth as to whether or not she uses it, but she was at uh, Baytech or Vitasoft, whichever uh, of the two it was, on her crutches, and that's tough. I mean, that is uh, unfortunately an impediment, and it, it's dangerous for her and for others if she were to get into some sort of action there. So I do have concerns there. And, you know, Babs, it's, it's hard now, I guess, to think about where is Babs' head because what is in her mind in continuity wise because i would think to myself if if she were retaining all of her information she would certainly think about all of the previous sidekicks that she has known and the bad things that have happened and and everything but you know maybe she's just thinking about jason and you know the robins and just how dangerous this is but she seems like right now she's taking on the persona of batman and I, I do wonder, because she has had these sidekicks, and she has nurtured them, and, and I don't think she was really very negative uh, towards any of them besides maybe the beginning. Where is this coming from uh, besides Alicia? If, if I'm sorry. If her only concern is Frankie's physical capabilities, I can totally see it. But I wonder if Frankie didn't have those issues, what would Babs 
have against it potentially so i'm just seeing a lot of batman here i would say when he says no very hard to, to certain people and of course then doubles back i agree with babs though after all that i do agree with babs i think it's dangerous for frankie to be out there and it mainly is because of her unfortunately because of her disability i'm i'm just concerned that something is going to happen and she's not trained so it's it's not like Oracle with her disability. I mean, she was trained number one as Batgirl, and then number two, of course, she had Richard Dragon train her with the Screamer Sticks. Frankie doesn't have that training, so either Frankie needs to sit back and do what Bats is telling her to do, or she needs to undergo some training and be capable. I don't know. I mean, those her crutches could certainly work in in a in some way, but I still, it makes me very nervous to see her out there. But my final thought on this whole thing is her taking that costume, I think is a breach, uh, a, a breach of trust, which I mean, is there a bigger breach than that? But just, you know, looking over there and taking that and going off, number one, going against what Babs has said, Babs has that experience. They may be the same age, but I think she does need to listen to Babs as if she were her superior and I think it's just dangerous to go out there because she could be you know targeted with this mask on and again the holes for the eyes are so large and Babs has been seen hanging out with Frankie that I feel like when these two get together and Kadir sees them something's got to click in his mind because there's a redhead and there's an African-American and they're together now but they were separated before and they're both wearing a cow there's got to be something so I, I I just think it's dangerous all around, and I hope it doesn't continue, but I'm sure it will just for dramatic effect. Luke, Kadir, and Babs, this little love triangle, talked about it somewhat before, at least with the Kadir and Babs, Donovan mentioned it. What do you guys think about this? Now, yeah, it was, it was uh, you know, I liked how Babs was comforting. Luke, as Batgirl, of course, you know, holding his hand and, and saying, patting it and saying, there, there, it's not your fault. Uh, it's interesting that Kadir was sneaking and feels a little, you know, sad, perhaps some some jealousy there. So I think maybe he does have some more feelings for her. But gee golly, Batgirl's really, uh, she is, <laughs> she's getting certainly more more fellows than than I've seen her at once anyways I mean she certainly has had fellows in the past but uh, was it Donovan who asked do you think she'll ever get to be like Dick Grayson with notches on the bedpost and boy I hope not because I do not think that not you know being a prude but that's just not her character so I'm hoping that she's able to if she does find someone that she likes again I just kind of want to focus on her as a person but if she does find someone she likes I hope she stays with it for a while and, and watch that relationship grow so it'd be nice to choose one of those two jeremy's unfortunately out of the picture but it'd be nice to bring him back in maybe this is the the way to do it this particular story since he's dating lonnie and yeah b <laughs> btw jeremy and lonnie what do i think about that uh well first of all totally out of character just him rudely bumping into them like watch out and then you hear that he had this day with his ex-girlfriend and must not have gone well and i'm just from that scene i'm trying to picture what type of person is lonnie gilbert and is she, is she just a total mean person not a nice girl I'm sure we'll find out. Uh, clearly, she is using Jeremy. I just want to know the history of that relationship, and, and I hope that we get to know Jeremy a little bit more through that. 
And I mean, if, if somebody makes you act callous and rude like that, then perhaps it is time to drop them and, and not return to them. But apparently, I mean, if she broke his heart, then he may be wanting her back a great deal. So there's, I would almost say, this is again one of those issues that's more exposition based, but primarily focusing on characters and character and relationship developments. And then, of course, you've got your punch right there at the end with Velvet Tiger appearing. And it's cool how they did this because it's all been the mystery of these attacks and trying to figure out what's going on. And so I like that the villain has been in the background and you don't see who it is, even though we knew who it was, but you don't see who it is until the very end. And so I like how we play up that mystery. But there are conflicts. I think the underlying you know, tone in here is very conflict-based. And so I'm interested to see how it develops from here with Velvet Tiger. And will I like Velvet Tiger more? And is she 10 years old? Can she jump into temporal pockets? I don't know. Will Joe die? I don't know. Guess we'll just have to wait and find out. I'm going to give this a 9 out of 10 bats. Again, something has got to give. It's like piling stuff up on a board and it's going to split at one point. Our next book is Gotham Academy number 9. Calamity. Writers Becky Cloonan and Brendan Fletcher. Artist Carl Kershaw. Colors Sergey Lapointe and Masasek. All of is still in the woods contemplating her mother's letter when Maps and the gang sneak up on her and tell her about the werewolf. Pommeline asks all of what is in the letter but all of is tight-lipped about it and basically just mind your own business. The gang investigates where Tristan was attacked and finds some fur. Colton says he can take it to his lair and analyze the hair, which gets Maps really excited because she always wanted a lair. After some science, Colton announces that it is Canis lupus wolf hair. Pommeline gives a lesson on werewolves and passes out some relics to keep them safe, but then Maps realizes that all of is missing. Olive enters her room to discover Maps' roommate Catherine there, sneaking around with a creepy look on her face. She leaves, but before Olive can ask some questions about why were you in my room touching my stuff, her school file is slipped under the door, and this file has information about her mother and her villain ID of Calamity, and also about the real reasons why Olive is there. Maps finds Olive and is not as interested in Catherine's behavior, but she does go with Olive to Professor Strain's office where Olive asks about the file. Apparently, she's not really there on scholarship, but actually so that people can keep an eye on her. And Tristan is in a similar situation, and the headmaster is interested in them both. Olive goes to visit Tristan, who is still in recovery with Langstrom and McPherson. It seems McPherson also knows more about Olive's entrance into the school. Olive talks to Tristan alone, and he explains his backstory and his history with Batman and Milo. Milo was helping to find a cure for him, but he used his DNA to make others like Tristan. Before he can continue, the werewolf bursts in and Olive defends Tristan, and they both knock the wolf out of the window. The gang comes up with a plan to beat the wolf to the gym, which they now realize the wolf is Coach Humphreys, while Colton goes to make an antidote. On the way to the meetup point, Calamity seems to speak to Olive and tells her to burn the wolf. Before anything more can happen, Colton shoots the wolf with a dart containing the antidote. Olive doesn't remember what happened, and the wolf reverts back to Humphreys. Returning back to school grounds, Pommeline tells Olive that she read the letter and found out some information on Calamity, but before she can tell her, Olive sees Calamity herself igniting the theater stage in flames. Next, Trouble and Toil. 
So the weird thing about Gotham Academy, and an amazing thing as well, is something that it does that actually annoys me when it happens to other books, but here it works really well. What we have here is a book that follows a main character, and her story is the book story. But we're constantly thrown off and distracted from her story by other things that are either put in her path or the path of her colleagues and those minor characters. Now, in other books like Gil Simone's Run on Backrow or Chrissy Marx's Birds of Prey, remember that when we were in a storyline, we then had to take a month off to do a tie-in and then come back again and then leave again. This happened with Gothtopia, with Zero Year, with Villains Month. Remember all of that stuff? It was very back and forth. I hated that. It was super annoying because you're getting into the storyline and then you're taken away and then you sort of forget what happened. But in Gotham Academy, it just all jives together well. That even if we are interrupted from learning about Olive because, hey, there's a werewolf, we actually still get little pieces about Olive along the way. So I think it, it works great. So actually, let's talk about Olive now. First off, we have this letter, and I think it's a little bit deceiving just because it did come out of nowhere. And it tells her things that I think perhaps she was hoping and wanting to hear. And it also instills in her suspicion and paranoia because it's telling her basically to trust no one. Then we have this file. The file that is slipped under her door mysteriously. We're told by Professor Strange she should not have it, slash should never have seen it. And her file mostly is made up of her mother. It's like 75% calamity and 25% her. And we're learning all these details about her, why she is here, her danger uh, to others potentially, or the danger of her mother to her and things like that. And then we have Calamity, of course, right? This fire starter. Yeah, we learned that she was involved in the city somehow, but Olive didn't really know all that. But now she's learning more and more about this. She was playing Arkham. Now she, the V word is being dropped that she's a villain. She's got this code name. So what I'm going to come up with now is, number one, Olive's mother, I honestly don't think is dead, as I said before. But I don't think that the calamity that we are seeing in this book right now that we saw two times is actually her mother. And I'm going to guess that it's either Professor Strange, Hugo Strange, or the headmaster portraying calamity, trying to get Olive to come to the dark side and using her love and interest in her mother to do it. And somehow, I mean, Hugo Strange, we know, well... If you are aware of him in Batman Mythos, he's got some hypnotic suggestion abilities, not as if it's a power, but, you know, since he is a psychologist, he's able to do things uh, with his learning. And I feel like because she has gone into trances sometimes and doesn't remember what she's doing and she's burning things, I think that it is a good bet that it's him. And I also think that slipping the file under the door is a way to get her to do this and then having someone dress up like Calamity and lighting things on fire probably with a natural way like a candle or something but seems like it's supernatural is a way to really get to her mind. So that is what I'm thinking. I'm glad that the mysterious character of Tristan is no longer as mysterious since he revealed how he came to be a man bat and how he came to be at Gotham Academy. I think this book only has room for one truly mysterious character and that really has to be all of at this point. 
but I do like the organic way of how their relationship has progressed and how they are connected already. So could this be love? I don't know. Catherine, for such a short appearance, uh, certainly struck me as odd and has stayed with me just the way she looks. Sneaking around in somebody's room, which should get you in trouble, even though Kyle did the same thing in the previous issue. Maps is apparently not even bothered by this or questions this at all. What's going on with Catherine? I love Maps's Operation Part Flow, which Part Flow is Wolf Trap spelled backwards. But I do wonder when she had time to make this, since it is detailed and it's got little illustrations and everything. And why does Maps have bizarre slips of grammar, which I feel like this is the first issue that this has ever happened, and McPherson is there to correct her. But it's like when someone pretends to be dumb for attention. I mean, she's young, but I think she should know the difference between is and are and when to use it. A little strange. A Pommeline and Olive update, if I were to do a shipper spotlight. Boy, they seem to be getting along swimmingly. There's certainly not really any tension. But here we have, you know, Pommeline wondering what that letter was, all saying back off. Pommeline somehow getting the letter and then telling her later and there being a fight. But I still think that we, we are practically friends. So just think about back to issue one, how spiteful and... and the amount of animosity between the two and, and here we go. And of course there is there's a breach there that Pomeline took that letter, but it seems like they're in a pretty good place. And of course they're on the team and there is a team and it's not as dysfunctional as, as you would think at the beginning. Speaking of Pomeline, why hasn't this book addressed the fact that Heathcliff is now gone? I mean he mentioned her in Black Canary, where's the vice versa? And also, we find out that Colton has a crush on someone, and Pumline knows. And Pumline sort of reminds me of myself, since I like to ship my students. And, and he asks, you know, how do you know this? And she says, it's my job to know, or something like that. So uh, it just reminds me of that. But uh, could it be Olive? Could Colton have a crush on Olive? Didn't He did stuff to her in the beginning of this run, so it could be. And Kyle actually didn't play much of a part at all here, which I suppose is the danger of having a team of more than one people, obviously. How many can you focus on in one issue? But I think we do a good job of each person sort of playing their part where Pomeline has her werewolf lesson. She gives out her little relics. Colton's doing the science. Maps is kind of the brains of the outfit. Olive has her own issues to deal with, of course. But where is Kyle? What part does he play? I think we're still sort of trying to figure that out. And maybe the writers are as well. Just uh, two references that were made here. I think this book certainly has more references than other books that I'm reading in DC. I'm trying to think over at uh, Backroll if it also had, I mean, that's sort of got like hipster culture references, but here we have almost pop culture references in this one, that spot if you can. Uh, oftentimes I, whenever there's something I don't understand why, maps often is saying what she's saying, I Google it and I figure out what's going on. Like I thought there was a world of Warcraft reference earlier like she talked about leveling up or something and I had to look it up but anyways uh, so there are two references here when Matt says something about uh, Catherine maybe she's a House of Secrets fan too so it is a movie Julie what happened who did it oh, I don't know please take me back upstairs Tell me, what happened? I was awakened by something. 
And I slipped down here into the living room and saw two men there by the fireplace. I started to scream when somebody or something grabbed me around the throat. I must have fainted. Julie, you're going to get out of here tonight. Oh, no. I'll be all right. I'm not afraid. <laughs> oh, Barry, you must go now. And leave you here with that thing, whatever it is, not a chance. Uh, but it is also the name of several mystery, fantasy, and horror anthology comic book series published by DC Comics uh, in the Silver and Bronze Age. And it's notable for being the title that introduced the character Swamp Thing. And it also had a companion series titled House of Mystery. So thanks for to Donovan for putting me on the track of that one. And another thing that Map says, I guess all the references come from Maps for whatever reason. So she has bad grammar, but she knows all these pop culture references. She says what, when they ask her, um, I can't remember who it was, maybe Kyle, if she was okay. She says in the pipe 5x5. Five five. And this is something that pops up in StarCraft, that video game. But it also pops up in... Uh, I think aliens and just any sort of spaceship-esque environment. And it's, uh, I've looked up on Urban Dictionary for the first time. Like, Urban Dictionary didn't give me something inappropriate. Uh, following a relatively safe corridor through enemy anti-aircraft fire, it means that the craft in question is either undamaged or has suffered very little damage. Switch to DCS ranging. 240, nominal to profile. We're in the pipe, five by five. So, if you are wondering about those references, there you go. Uh, I'm going to give this nine out of ten diplomas. The mystery of the werewolf has been solved, but the mystery of calamity continues, and I think that's going to be, it seems like that is the thin thread, the thin thread that ties everything together like I said it's Olive's book so that Olive and her mother that's the big thing and then we're going to be interspersed with other little uh, moments that sort of draw us away from that and still keeping track of Black Canary uh, here we have Dinah re-meeting her ex-husband Kurt Lance and Kurt lets us in on the secret of who Ditto really is and Ditto is not of this world and then Ditto is kidnapped by the rocker that we saw that is somewhat spiteful in issue number two i would say that this book is it is of a slower pace you learn and it doesn't while i would almost say that about gotham academy i feel like it just doesn't execute as well as gotham academy so i think like more either more needs to happen or we need to move that uh, storyline along a little more quickly. But it is tough when you're number one battling people, number two a rock band and having to perform. So where is that line between the two? But uh, I think we're finding some sort of medium, but I do think that this issue, the pace is noticeable that it is slow. So I'm going to give it an 8.5 out of 10 rock stars. Now over to Chris for his Batman 66 review. Thanks, Stella. Before I get to this month's review of Batman 66, I pay tribute and my respects to Yvonne Craig, who portrayed Barbara Gordon and Batgirl on the final season of the 60s Batman TV series. As Stella and Shag previously mentioned, Yvonne Craig passed away between the recordings of the regular podcast episodes this past August 17th at age 78 due to complications related to breast cancer. 
I am very fortunate to be on Stella's podcast related to Batgirl and reviewing the Batman 66 title where the Yvonne Craig depicted Batgirl makes an occasional appearance. Before appearing as Batgirl, Craig was an accomplished ballet dancer and put those skills to use later on the show. She appeared in two Elvis Presley movies, It Happened at the World's Fair, and Kiss and Cousins. She also appeared in an episode of Perry Mason alongside actor Neil Hamilton, and the two would later be reunited on Batman playing a father and daughter. After Batman, she played Marta and Orion slave girl on Star Trek in the episode Whom Gods Destroy. She would go on to play Batgirl one more time around 1972 in a public service announcement for the U.S. Department of Labor, advocating equal pay for women. In the announcement, which can be found on YouTube, Batgirl wonders if she should free a tied-up Batman and Robin next to a ticking time bomb, since she doesn't get equal pay. Burt Ward returned to portray Robin in this spot, and it sounded like William Dozier did the narration, but it's Dick Gaudier playing Batman here. The Huffington Post called her a pioneer of female superheroes for television. Like many fans, I relished if I saw her name and the Batgirl animation with her on her Batgirl cycle in the opening credits of Batman. In doing some research, I found that Yvonne Craig wasn't happy with the killing joke. Are you listening, Stella? She is quoted as saying in part, it was an awful thing to do to her, referring to Barbara Gordon. In the early 2000s, I had the pleasure of meeting Yvonne Craig at an October comic book convention near Chicago's O'Hare Airport. Also at the show were James Doohan, Scotty from Star Trek, and Richard Keel, best known as Jaws from the James Bond movies, where three of my fandoms collided in one short space. In this cramped area, Doohan was straight ahead in a cushioned chair, and he was fast asleep while his wife apologized to those who wanted to meet him. To my right, Richard Keel wasn't signing autographs, but having much more fun playing with children on the carpet. To my left was Yvonne Craig, who was there with her sister and some hand sanitizer. While standing in line, I noticed a big sign that read to the effect, Please note that Miss Craig will not autograph baseballs. And I wondered to myself, who would ask such a thing? But sure enough, the man in front of me did just that. I was lucky for Yvonne Craig to autograph her autobiography, From Ballet to the Batcave and Beyond. A great book which I recommend if you can find a copy that reflects her professionalism. Along with that, I also got an 8x10 signed, To Chris, Best Bat Wishes, Yvonne Batgirl Craig. Craig was nice, classy, vibrant, warm, perky, smiling, and a true pleasure in the brief moment I had with her. I treasured that experience. Now, on to the review. Today I'll look at Batman 66, number 26, cover dated October 2015. The cover art was provided once again by Michael and Laura Allred, and the contents were originally released in download format. The story is entitled Poison Ivy's Deadly Kiss, and was written by Jeff Parker with art by Jesse Hamm. Our story opens with the seeming death of our hero's old foe, Louis the Lilac, but a lipstick kiss mark leaves a clue for Batman. Back at the Batcave, Batman finds out that the lipstick was a compound made up of different plants, which eventually leads our heroes to the Isley Nursery. Upon arrival, Batman recalls a trip to the nursery as a young Bruce Wayne with his parents, where he met a young Pamela Isley. Pam's father was exposed to a fatal plant and never recovered. The nursery closed and the family moved away. Suddenly, our heroes are seized by giant vines and lifted off the ground. 
Poison Ivy reveals herself, and Batman quickly ascertains her identity. Poison Ivy displays that she has the means to sprout her own plant-like henchmen and tries to drop the dynamic Nuo into a giant Jupiter flytrap. But our heroes manage to escape, with Robin being able to kick a capsule on Batman's utility belt. But not before Poison Ivy and her hench plants get away. Now, using a giant walking tree, Poison Ivy crashes into a discotheque. And Batman does a little bit of his Batusi dance. A small bat fight ensues. Poison Ivy tries to make her get away on a giant tree, but Batman has Alfred lure the tree away with artificial light. Batman captures Poison Ivy, and Poison Ivy is able to revive Louis the Lilac. Batman lectures Poison Ivy to use her skills for good, but in turn, she kisses Batman deeply. The end. Poison Ivy did not appear in the 60s Batman TV series, but she did make her first appearance in the comic book in Batman number 181 a few months after the series debuted. She also made an appearance in the syndicated Batman comic strip around the same time. Now, a popular question among fans is who would you have cast in the role if she did appear? And Margaret is an overwhelmingly popular choice. Other names brought up are Barbara Rhodes, Tina Louise, Stella Stevens, and Deanna Lund. Louis the Lilac was played by Mr. Television himself, Milton Berle, who passed away in 2002 at age 93. I thought this was a great debut for Poison Ivy and Batman 66 continuity. We got some nice background and the origin of the character. And like her comic book debut story, this depiction of Poison Ivy is evil, sexy, and playful. Jeff Parker turned in a better than decent story here. I have just as high praise for Jesse Ham's artwork here. The depictions of Batman are outstanding, as well as those of Poison Ivy herself. Now check out every panel Poison Ivy is in here. There's whimsy, playfulness, attitude, high leg kicks, sexuality, hair twirling, fun, and evil. I hope he and Ivy make a return to this title very soon. Now, the Batman 66 title has had some great artwork, and Ham certainly has left a favorable impression. This issue is great stuff. Now, over on the TBU website, Jerry Green gave this 3 out of 5 bats. I'm giving Batman 66, number 26, 9 out of 10 bats based on the story and the outstanding artwork. Next to the Zelda the Great issue, this was one of the best issues of the series run. Okay, before I end, I just want to remind listeners out there that Batman Day is Saturday, September 26. If the day hasn't passed by the time you are listening to this, check out your local comic book store, bookstore, and library and see if they are giving out any swag and or having any events going on in conjunction with this event. What villain will the Riddler team up with in a future issue that features Batgirl? What monstrous villains will turn up in a Halloween-themed issue of Batman 66? What two villainesses will show up to taunt, tease, and tussle with our heroes? These and other baffling questions to be answered next time. Same Stella feed, same Stella sight. Thank you, Chris. Now don't change that dial. It is Babs in the Tube. The segment where I examine an individual appearance of Barbara Gordon in the media, whether it be TV or film, and currently I am watching the 1977 New Adventures of Batman TV series. This is episode 10, He Who Laughs Last, air date April 14th, 1977. Starring Adam West as Batman and Bruce Wayne, Bird Ward as Robin and Dick Grayson, Lou Scheimer as Batmite and the Batcomputer, Melanie Britt as Batgirl and Barbara Gordon, 
and Lenny Weinrib as Commissioner Gordon and the Joker. The Joker returns with a new devious plan boiling inside of his head. Take a listen. Greetings, Bat fans. This is Batman. And Robin, the boy wonder. And me too, Batmite. Welcoming you to the new adventures of Batman. Watch us wage our never-ending battle of good versus evil. Ride with us as we chase the greatest array of villains the world has ever seen, proving that crime does not pay. Get set for thrills and action. Join me, Batman. And me, Robin the Boy Wonder. And Batgirl. And me too, Batmite. In the super new adventures of Batman. Jailbreak, close all gates. Guards, report to your station. Jailbreak in cell block C. Jailbreak. <laughs> here I am. <laughs> Over here. <laughs> Come on now. Try and find me. Over there. Get the lights. Over there. <laughs> Roses are red, <laughs> and violets are blue. <laughs> you won't find me. You haven't a clue. <laughs> Roses are red, and violets are... <laughs> Hello down there. I want to thank you for a not-so-pleasant stay. It's the Joker. After him. <laughs> Sorry, gentlemen, but my Joker flame is here, and <laughs> I must be leaving. One last thing. I have a message for Batman. Tell him I haven't forgotten who put me here in jail. <laughs> Tell Batman that I shall devote myself to making him... <laughs> the laughing stock of Gotham City. <laughs> My newest invention, Robin, helium paint. Now that is really something. Hi, fellas. Hey, look, I got a surfboard. Easy there. Hey, cut it out. You haven't seen anything yet. Watch this. Whee! <laughs> oh, no. Sorry, Robin. Holy aggravation, Batman. What are we gonna do with him? The question, Robin, is what we're going to do with you. 
Yes, Commissioner? Batman, you'd better take a look outside. Outside? Take a look. You'll see. I think we'd better get up to the Bat Tower. smart. You think you're witty, but I am the smartest in Gotham City. So try and catch me, that is if you dare. But first I warn you, you'd better beware. Oh yeah? We'll see about that. Go ahead, Robin. For where there is smoke, there is also fire. That is your clue, and I am no liar. Holy Joker, Batman. What do you think he's up to? You never know with a Joker, Robin. Let's go, Robin. Bat might you stay here. Where there's smoke, there's fire. And maybe the Joker, too. Batman calling Commissioner Gordon. There's a large fire at the junkyard. Looks like the work of the Joker. Better send out the fire department. Batman out. I'm afraid Batman is going to have his hands full with the Joker. Maybe Batgirl can be of some help. Holy burning trash. I never thought that Joker would do anything like this. I don't think he meant to, Robin. Looks like he just wanted a small blaze in there, but the sparks jumped across the road. That's what happens when you play with fire. Batman, Batman, a man asked me to give this to you. Thank you. I couldn't wait, so please pursue. Pagliacci's my favorite, and it's also your clue. What's a Pagliacci? It's a very famous opera. It's the story of a clown. No wonder the Joker likes it. Tell me about the man who gave you this. Well, Spot and I were playing over there. Where's my dog? Great balls of fire. That dog's in trouble. You're welcome. <laughs> Batman, I think you've made a friend. Here you are, son. Gee, thank you, Batman. see what the Joker was up to. Would you give this to Batgirl? Pagliacci! It's an opera about a clown! 
I know, I also know that the famous Spanish singer Mucho Gusto is giving a special performance today. The governor, the mayor, even Commissioner Gordon will be there. And the opera is Pagliacci. Then let's go. you laugh, Commissioner. Always leave them laughing. It's... <laughs> it's... <laughs> laughing gas. <laughs> I can't help myself. I don't know what's... <laughs> Commissioner, officer, arrest that man. Batman? That's right. I want Batman arrested. Arrested? Holy false imprisonment. Suffer and shatter. All right, Batman, I apologize. But it sure seemed to be you up there on that stage. Well, things aren't always the way they seem, Commissioner. You're right, but the Joker made you look pretty silly. And I sure wish I knew what he was going to do next. <laughs> <laughs> now stop it, Giggles! <laughs> You're making me laugh! <laughs> now you wait here! Now stop that! This is... <laughs> Serious business. <laughs> Sorry, I had to do that. But this location must remain a secret. I understand, Batman. So, this is the famous Batcave. And where is Batmite? Here I am, with a small present. None of your visit. Well, thank you. What is it? Helium paint. One of the inventions we've been working on. We listen here. Yes, Commissioner. Well, the Joker's done it again. Go out to the zoo and you'll see what I mean. Do you mind if I stay here and use the computer? I have an idea. Of course. Batmite can stay and help you. and sting like a bee. Batman, look! Like an elephant, I never forget. So watch out, Batman, I'll get you yet. Continued on next elephant. 
When you figure out what I intend, you'll spend your time in search of a friend. You'll spend your time in search of a friend? Holy weird riddles, Batman. I don't get it. Well, when the Joker speaks in rhyme, you can bet he has a reason. Hey, look, look out, out for the animals! Watch out! Watch out. Over there, Robin. <laughs> Boy wonder, we have to catch him before he spooks the other animals. chance, Robin. If I can contact the Batcave. Batman calling Batgirl. Batman calling Batgirl. Come in. Go ahead, Batman. Give me ten seconds, then change the computer mode to music. And then dial in circus. First, music, then circus. Roger, Batman. All right, Robin. To the Batmobile. Now for the stereo speakers. And now for the bat aerial. Seven, eight, nine, ten. circus act. Of course, Robin. Once you've been in show business, you never forget. All right, Robin. The zookeeper will take over now. Let's get back to the bat cave. <laughs> there they go, giggles. <laughs> well now, <laughs> no more Mr. Nice Guy. <laughs> Not so loud. And the Joker set up the kangaroo and the elephants. Now, look what happens if we just keep the first letter of each word. Joke. He's spelling out Joker. Good thinking, Batgirl. Holy alphabet. Then R is next. I'd better call the commissioner. Yes, Batman. I see. Then all we have to do is figure out where the R will be. That's right, Commissioner. Any ideas? Yes, several. It could be the railroad roundhouse. Better send Robin there. Don't you leave the Batcave until I call you back. Right, Commissioner. Robin, you and Bat might take off for the railroad roundhouse and watch your step. Don't worry, Chief. I'll take care of him. 
man. By the time he figures this out, <laughs> I'll have Robin thousands of miles away. <laughs> sure looks quiet. Sure does. Hey, look! That's the boy we met at the junkyard. I'll go ask him if he's seen anything. I'll look around in the railroad roundhouse. Uh, something's wrong. I keep wondering what the Joker meant by, you'll spend your time in search of a friend. Batgirl, your father's voice sounded strange. I wonder... Yes, Batman. Commissioner, no time to explain. Did we speak a few minutes ago? No, we didn't. I was afraid of that. I'll call you later, Commissioner. The last letter in the Joker's name, R. He's after Robin. Let's go.
again. The throttle's broken. We can't stop. That girl calling Batman. The bridge is out. Stop the train. We can't stop. The control's broken. Batgirl, can you drop me the helium paint that Batman gave you? I'm on my way. who helped. They're the unsung heroes. I think we should all take turns wearing this. One more thing. See you next week. And finally, my literature recommendation. I'm actually going to give you three of them. So if you don't like one, well, hopefully you'll like one of the three. First is The, the Virgin Suicides by Jeffrey Eugenides. And reading from the back cover of the book, this is what it's about. In a quiet suburb of Detroit, the five Lisbon sisters, beautiful, eccentric, and obsessively watched by the neighborhood boys, commit suicide one by one over the course of a single year. As the boys observe them from afar, transfixed, they piece together the mystery of the family's fatal melancholy in this hypnotic and unforgettable novel of adolescent love, disquiet, and death. <laughs> so you're probably wondering, oh my, why am I recommending that? Uh, it was on my list, and while it seems very dark and uh, disturbing, well, certainly where it, it, it had those moments in it, uh, I actually enjoyed it and raced through that pretty quickly. And it is interesting in the way that he is able to couple this death and tragedy with dark humor and wit. So I do recommend that. And I'm also going to recommend 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And this tells the multi-generational story of the Buendia family, whose patriarch Jose Arcadio Buendia founds the town of Macondo, uh, which is the metaphoric Colombia. And it's hard for me. It's basically following this family, and it's very cyclical, and you need the the family tree in the beginning to to really keep track because people have the same names. But it also just goes through almost, it's almost like beginning of time through, you know, getting technology and people and communication and all that stuff and, and as it goes. So it, it almost mirrors the world and the different ages that we have gone through. So I do recommend that. And finally, this is the last little piece of information about myself that I will talk about. This is a very personal episode, isn't it? My final one is Starlight on Willow Lake by Susan Wiggs. And one of my guilty pleasures, actually, that I don't tell many people about, and now I'm about to tell thousands, is I actually enjoy, from time to time, some 
romance novels. Now, the romance novels that I read, though, um, are not like the, the smut stuff. They're like more family-oriented and have, you know, deeper plots and things that go on. But one of them that, and, and really I only read Susan Wiggs's series called the Lakeshore Chronicles, which follows this one particular family and, and the different relationships that they have. And so anyways, the reason why I'm recommending this particular book is because one of the main characters in this is a quadriplegic and I thought of, and so that one is, I, I guess I should say, like a more difficult position than Barbara Gordon was as Oracle because uh, this woman is unable really to, to utilize the use of her arms. So uh, it was interesting. As I was reading it, I was just thinking a lot about, about Barbara Gordon and just, you know, this woman had a very sour attitude and, off, you know, very often reflecting on the past. And so a great part of it is, you know, trying to get back to not necessarily, you know, the life that she had, but trying to have a more optimistic outlook and, and working through these things and, and being thankful for her life because she was in an accident, an avalanche. And yeah, I was just thinking about Barbara Gordon because I, I feel like she had or she, yeah, you saw in Birds of Prey that she had that that negative attitude sort of surfaced a couple times, and so if you're you know interested in reading about something like that, I thought that was a good one. And again, it is not smut. That's what it's called, right? It's not smut. There's sort of a romance scale uh, for different romance novels where one is like very tepid and two is more and like it goes up and uh i it's in the two it's in the two to threes it's in the the warm area so it's not you know scandalous so when you say romance novels i think it gets a bad rap which is why i don't talk about it as much but uh, i do recommend that and that just came out so there you go well, that's it for this very personal and stellar enlightening episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Th these things don't happen very often, so you should take hold of it. Remember, you can send any questions or comments to backworldoracle at gmail.com. You can also post on the batmanuniverse.net, you know, where I post the actual episodes because I get emails that someone's posted. So don't think that I'm neglecting you if I do not respond in the post because I sort of save it. And also, if you email me and I don't respond to you, it's more than likely because I haven't, I don't want to give my answer to you in text. I'm waiting to do it on air. So I do feel sorry. Uh, I am sorry if you have thought that I'm sort of being cold to you and not responding. That's not at all my intention. Also send me questions with the subject line in your email, maybe John Ostrander interview, if you have questions for John Ostrander. Remember, I'm going to be focusing mostly on Barbara Gordon, obviously, in his tenure on Suicide Squad. I will also bring up Amanda Waller because I find her a very fascinating uh, character study. Um, but if you have other questions that you're just dying to know about other characters that I didn't cover or questions that I forgot or little moments, then please, yeah, uh, absolutely write those in. And like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at Backworld Oracle and like the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. And once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Backworld Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Well, the weather is changing. 
and soon we will have fall and already pumpkin ice cream is out i'm so excited i went through such a trial i was going to all these places asking when it was coming and it didn't happen until october and so it's out already it's like august 31st i think maybe it hit so i'm super pumped about that i will be getting my pumpkin ice cream soon so that is all get your pumpkin ice cream people you will not regret it. it'll be an, a wonderful life experience for you but until next time fly on bats lovers just plain barbara gordon masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special batgirl cycle who knows is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you? Gee, this is too much. Too much! <laughs> Thanks, Josh Bertone.